0: talk is about freedom. When I was up in Upper Burma in January of this year, uh, once in a while I had the opportunity to explore a bit up in the hills behind where Saida Ullakana's monastery uh, was. Uh, Sayadaw Ulakana was the abbot, the head um, of this monastery where I taught uh, that retreat with him. Some of us know Sayadaw from the last retreat. Uh, There were a lot of beautiful old pagodas that uh, were pretty empty uh, and so wonderful to sit there Uh, So one day I was sitting around maybe 11 o'clock in the morning at this place uh, that anybody who walked through um, would have to step on me (laughs) to get through this place. But my experience there uh, had been that I'd never seen anybody there. So I I just decided one day to just plop myself down even though it was in the way. Uh, So I had been sitting maybe probably quite a while, maybe an hour and a half, Uh, and I heard this rustling sound, uh, like a squirrel in leaves. And I was so quiet, I didn't want to open my eyes. Uh, But then the rustling sound started to seem closer and closer, less like a squirrel and more like a big mammal. (laughs) 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 Uh, So I opened my eyes. And there was a monk. uh, and a person, Kapya, who was taking care of the monk. Uh, And they so much didn't want to disturb my practice uh, that they had crawled over a wall, gone gone through these really thorny bushes (laughs) uh, so they wouldn't disturb me. And I was so touched by that. You know, that there was such respect. For uh, one's practice. I and mean, I couldn't imagine that happening actually in this country. Uh, and I think of that as sort of um, a kind of metaphor, symbol of how we can go through our life, you know, that we can have that much respect uh, for our own or others' practice, that we're willing to uh, maybe go through the Suffering that ends suffering uh, rather than perpetuate suffering. Uh, That retreat uh, was wonderful because uh, Sayadaw would give a talk one night, then I would give, well, in the afternoon, as you know, (laughs) he'd give a talk in the afternoon, then I would give a talk the next night. Uh, His talks in this retreat were a lot about physical pain. You know, the examples he was using uh, was how to work over and over with physical pain. And toward maybe the middle of the retreat, after he would give his talk, I would answer questions. And some students were just kind of getting frustrated with him talking so much about physical pain. That people started asking, you know, Michelle, why? Why does he keep using? this example of physical pain. You know, can he use another (laughs) example? And it just, it was a few more talks and he was still giving the example of working with physical pain. And again, the question kept arising, why? Why can't he give another example? Uh, And I thought it was so interesting that he was using something so, (laughs) you know, so common for us as yogis. I mean, what could be more universal, whether you're a new student or an old student or whatever, you know, in terms of sitting hour after hour after hour. I mean, if you could come up with one thing that might be the most common for everybody, it would probably be physical pain. You know, and then as a an example for how to work with the pain in this world, it's a pretty good example. You know, it's it's a lot clearer in terms of um, how to be free, and let go of control, often than working with mental states. It's a little harder to see it that clearly. So freedom, freedom from suffering. The Buddha said, "This was his first utterance after his enlightenment. How many lives, how many rounds of rebirth, have I experienced, without finding the builder of this house? Now I see you, old builder. All your rafters are broken, your ridgepole is shattered. Never again." need you build a house for me. My mind has gone beyond the transitory, the conditioned, and has achieved the extinction of craving. The extinction of craving means that we can live freely, that we're free. And this is a life that lives, that we live in harmony. The mind is light, peaceful, quiet imperturbable, we're liberated from believing in a separate self. After how many lives do we see the builder of our own house? When we see the source of suffering, craving, there's no more struggle. (coughs) And what is this house, you know, this house is the identification with being an I, or me, or mine. And this identification leads to a stressful, self-centered life. Um, So the freedom is when we have no more craving for existence, no more craving for non-existence. There's no more I want, no more I don't want. And so the mind is imperturbable, it's at peace. Another way to describe this is that we're not trying to get anything. We're not trying to get rid of anything. One of um, the things that U Upandita, a, a great teacher I had from Burma, said to me once, really early on in meeting him, is that this practice of the pasana is developing a mind that's ready for anything to happen. That's pretty simple. And so what does that mean? You know, it means that the truth, the truth of life is that anything can happen. And then we often have all these kind of grandiose ideas about what freedom is, but that's what it is. It's this ability to be ready for anything. And this readiness is actually very soft and light and tender. It's not rigid or controlling. Anything can happen and we can develop an imperturbability within this um, life of change. When we start to pay attention to how we really are in the face Uh, of how life is, one of the things we have to face is that we're really not ready for anything to happen. And if we look closely at ourselves, we're probably pretty easily perturbable. I love the word perturbable. (laughs) It's even fun to say. (laughs) (coughs) Imperturbable is not always our experience. So, we've talked about pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feelings. It's an aspect of mindfulness. It's the second foundation of mindfulness, paying attention. Uh, And this takes a certain um, kind of stillness of mind initially in practice uh, to really be able to pick up that this is mental feeling, that with each moment of consciousness, And consciousness is appearing and disappearing moment by moment. That with each moment of consciousness, we have no control over it. There's appearing and disappearing, a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And this is like a river of change, or a stream of change in the stream of consciousness that we call me, or I, or mine. Uh, So that sense that we never know what's going to happen, is really on this kind of microscopic level. Uh, It means that we're incredibly vulnerable. Existence is really a world of intense insecurity. If we have um, some concentration, which is what this practice is about, it's not trying to get too much, but it's trying to get enough concentration so that the mind is still enough to see what happens if we really do let go of control. If we really do even let control of the anchor of being with the movement or bre- of the breath or sound, really see what happens. Uh, because what you'll probably find out that's happening is that each moment There's something happening at the sense door. There's a change. There's another cough. There's another sneeze. There's another sound of birds. There's another thought. There's another knee pain. It's like this bombardment that's happening at each of our sense doors, moment by moment. And because this is um, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral and changing, it means that experience itself... Is really not satisfactory. We can't control it. Controlling it is an illusion. What we call me or my or mine is a moment of craving or a moment of the reactive mind. And what I means is just a temporary moment of reacting to pain with aversion it's the i don't want mind it's i don't want that unpleasant sound i don't want that unpleasant sight touch taste smell thought or what we will call me or i or mine is just a temporary moment or moments of attachment um It's the wanting mind. It's I want that pleasant sound, taste, smell, touch, thought. I don't know how many of you had those cookies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But I must say, I I wish I took two. (laughs) They had more chocolate chips than any cookie I've ever had in my life. I didn't mind that I spilled it all (laughs) over my shirt. (laughs) It was so good. (laughs) So aversion is basically, I don't want attachment as I want. But if you look even more closely at that, it's only when we believe I want that we're attached. It's only when we believe, I don't want, that we're attached. We can have a thought, I want another chocolate chip cookie, but it can just arise and pass. And if we don't believe it, we're not imprisoned. We're free. If you look closely at I want or I don't want in the mind, it's really just an attempt at security. It's an attempt at control. It's an attempt at protection, and that's the house builder. So when the Buddha said, house builder, I have seen you, my mind has gone beyond the transitory, the conditioned, and has extinguished craving. It means that he saw completely through that separate sense of I, that separate house, you know, that he no longer identified with this false sense of security. You know, so our conditioned kind of protection is controlling what's happening through aversion and attachment or delusion. This is from a book on dependent origination, The Buddhist Law of Conditionality. The Buddha said that the unlearned being, the unwise being, experiences pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. The learned being also experiences pleasant feelings, unpleasant feelings, and neutral feelings. What is the distinction, the contrast, the disparity between the learned and the unlearned being? When unlearned beings encounter unpleasant feelings, they grieve, lament, wail, beat their chest, and are distraught and distracted therein. They experience two kinds of feeling, namely in the body and in the mind. It is as if an archer having fired one arrow into a, a certain person were then to fire a second arrow that person would experience pain from both arrows. Such is the unwise being. They experience two kinds of pain, bodily and mental. But with a learned or wise being, just as if an archer having shot one arrow into a certain person, and then would shoot a second arrow but missed the mark. In this case, that person would experience pain only on account of the first arrow. Such is the learned being. They experience pain in the body, but not in the mind. And then it goes on to say, moreover, this learned being experiences no displeasure on account of the unpleasant feeling. And because there's no displeasure, there's no aversion, no aversion, no desire for sense pleasure, Uh, and then not seeking distraction from the pain and sense pleasure uh, the craving for pleasant feeling is no longer accumulating in which case this learned being is liberated from suffering this learned being meaning that there is no longer uh, being tied to experience. Looking closely that means not being tied to pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling. And that means the person can live freely in this world of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling. One is in harmony with this change of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feeling, rather than trying to control it or fight it. Uh, so what mindfulness does is create a different kind of protection than aversion or attachment. Uh, and this is readiness. And remember it's a it's a tender readiness. it's not an armored readiness <coughs> It's a soft, tender imperturbable awareness and imperturbable <coughs> means that the mind or heart is seeing clearly. It sees clearly the flow of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. If we see, say, you might have been following the peony buds outside, if you've been here for a while, or maybe the iris buds, but some kind of flower bud, uh, you might notice that the flower bud doesn't say, you know, man, do I need to open? I mean, can you hear that flower bud saying that? Probably not. Uh, The flower bud opens by itself with certain conditions. um, There's a ripeness and it opens by itself. Who is it that opens? What is it in us that opens? What is it that lets go? Is it the house-builder or an I that lets go? It would be impossible. It's not possible for a separate self to open. The aversion and the attachment is is, 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 um, disappears. It's not present, because we see clearly the opening then will happen by itself. When we see clearly in a moment the belief in a a thought, I want this, or I don't want that, and we see how painful that is, you know, we understand how painful it is, Uh, then we don't want to build the house anymore. You know, the commitment to understanding that that isn't true, grows? Someone asked this morning about, well, can you hold on to insight or understanding? Um, What grows is the commitment to be free. You know, the commitment to be free from suffering. uh, Because we see clearly that it can happen. You know, we, we actually experience that feeling like a flower opening. And it feels so wonderful. Uh, that we get committed to it. If we say to ourselves, "Our boy or man, do I need to let go of wanting? Or do I need to let go of this aversion? We can know that, yes, there's that yearning, uh, but that wanting it isn't going to make it happen. Wanting it is only adding more house building on it. It's just adding more (laughs) suffering. You know, wanting can't get rid of wanting. Aversion can't get rid of aversion. Uh, Because we're not seeing clearly in that moment. Uh, When we see clearly, it's a voluntary letting go. You know, because you can't possibly hold on to something (laughs) that doesn't work. You know, that's so painful. Uh, And we see in that moment that we never had control in the first place. This is a letter to everyone, uh, by Reps. Reps wrote, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Dear, basically, Dear Everyone, Are we born? Do we die? How could we? We have nothing to do with it. Like leaves, we flutter and let go. Let go. Birth may be a separation, Death a reward, rest assured. Someone asked this morning, you know, what what is interest? You know, when Marcia was describing a young child, you know, you can imagine a young child investigating anything, a worm, (laughs) you know, a flower, a snake, you know, there's no discrimination initially. Uh is this the same kind of interest we bring to are we born do we die now this this kind of interest in this practice is really um, an interest that's really born out of wisdom it's born out of understanding (coughs) this interest isn't analytical (coughs) but it's it's coming out of our present moment experience. Um, how do we remember that we want to be even interested? You know, How does that happen? Pay attention to it. I was just paying attention to it today when I went for a walk outside. We have to remember that we want to be in the present moment and that it's precious, and that it's worthy of something. We have to remember that being lost in the past and the future, and wanting and not wanting, is really being lost. Uh, So much of it uh, comes out of, interest comes out of any understanding that we have, and that we remember. If we just look at our own thought process after a sitting, you know, the bell rings, that was a lousy sitting. Gee, I'm so glad that one's over. (laughs) Oh, if I have a cup of tea and I do the same kind of walking I did three hours ago, right, and maybe I'll have a good sitting, you know? that incredible planning, you know, just and, uh, remembering and planning. It, there's so much trying to get control, you know, and if you look closely, it's really trying to get the most comfort <laughs> and the best out of the situation, and we're trying to avoid as much pain as possible, unless the pain led us to some kind of great sitting. You know, then we'll sit there <laughs> looking for it. You know, we're amazing. <laughs> or if we just listen to our mind when we're going through the lunch line, you know, never mind what we're thinking of looking when we're looking at other people's plates. <laughs> I know if we've sat a long time, we'll probably think, well, the 2.15 sitting's going to be a disaster if I have another plate of food. But if it tastes good, we might think, well, Sleeping through that sitting probably not so bad. <laughs> It'll be worth it. You know, we're still trying to figure out how to get the best situation. <laughs> uh, but over time, we get humor with it. You know, you can hear us laughing. You know, it's just controlling. It's just judging. You know, you can just hear the bell ring and just be ready for it. That was a great sitting. Maybe I should still sit here. You know, it's just that amazing chatter. Um, I was doing a retreat down at the study center. Um, it might be two year, a year and a half ago. Uh, and I was looking forward to this quiet that I assumed was going to be there. And the very first morning I started sitting, this flatbed truck rolled up. Um, with all this equipment, you know, lumber, and they built this addition onto the study center. The exact length of my retreat. <laughs> and I really have to work with aversion to that kind of sound, you know. Uh, and I, not only was it, you know, the hammering and the sawing, and, uh, but the carpenters turned on the AM radio at 7 in the morning <laughs> and played it as loud as they could t- to, you know, to be over the skill saw and the hammering, you, know, you can imagine how loud that is, uh, all day and you know, even through lunch. <laughs> uh, and during that retreat, I just had this sense that my mind was so similar to the AM radio. No it's not even good FM music. <laughs> You can hardly get public radio. You know, if you're lucky, one sitting might be like public radio. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a great teaching because I just started treating my mind like an AM radio that I can't turn off. You know, try to relate to your mind like that, or like a backseat driver. You know, either like an AM radio (laughs) or a backseat (laughs) driver. But just try to let it, as Steve said the other night, try to see if you can let it be background rather than foreground. I mean, if it's foreground still, we have to learn to work with it. It's just thinking. It's not ours. You know, we have the sense that the eye sees. The ear hears. But we don't try to get rid of the eye to be free and the ear hears, but we don't tend to try to get rid of the ear to be free. But with the mind, the mind, think of it like an organ. It's like a radio. It thinks. But we, we don't have to get rid of the thinking to be free. We don't have to get rid of the mind. But so much of our emphasis on retreat tends to be seeing this mind like an AM radio. And thinking that we have to get rid of it to be free, that's, I would let it go, let go of that one. (laughs) It's learning how to let it be background and to know that the only problem is when we identify with it. Otherwise, it's just like the sound of a bird or an AM radio. are times when we see through the lens of dukkha when we're practicing and that means that we really are seeing this velocity of change that's happening but it'll feel like a kind of bombardment at the sense doors sights, sounds, smells, thoughts tastes, uh, touch and it's moving so fast if we get a sense of that it will be unsatisfactory the experience itself but be careful of not distinguishing between the aversion to that unsatisfactoriness and just the unsatisfactoriness. Because if we get lost in the aversion to it, we really get lost. Uh, But if we can open to the just that experience is unsatisfactory because it's changing so fast, we can shift to being aware of the vulnerability of it. And it's just vulnerability. And we can learn to bear that. That's how we learn how to flow with the present moment. See how long you can really be in the present moment. And it's usually what pulls us out, is not being able to withstand that poignancy of life changing so fast. If we can get that far, With unsatisfactoriness and not getting lost in the aversion, often a helplessness will appear or despair or anger. And at this place, we'll have an experience often that nothing will work. We'll try to go to the anchor. We might try to do some metta or come up with some inspiring thoughts. Um, But usually, we just get to this last resort, which is more mindfulness. You know, it's like we have to shift back to being able to just flow with that vulnerability and change. Uh, And at that point, it will often feel like we have to get down on our knees. You know, it's not a total surrender, but it's the beginning of a surrender. In this place, often a desire for annihilation or a desire for non-existence can appear. There's a great... Bob Dylan line where he says there must be some kind of way out of here said the joker to the thief there's too much confusion I can't get no relief another way to think of this I saw a movie recently uh, where there was a line in the movie that said um, if you're not confused you don't know what's going on And when we have this experience of confusion, it means we're still fighting how life is. And often we can think, I give up, I can't do this, I don't want to be here, or this isn't for me. Uh, but listen to it. It's like, I, I, I give up, I don't want to be here, I can't take this. Um, and there's an, a desire to get rid of the body and mind, but get rid of taking birth here. Uh, And that's a kind of craving. It's the opposite of craving for life. It's a craving for less life. Um, uh, But what this teaching says is that the only way out of this is through. It's by going through how life is. It's like um, we just get here in the present moment so fully. Through this desire for deliverance, or desire for understanding, or through disenchantment. And out of just staying with that process, of just coming more fully to be with how life is, through that vulnerability and through that um, kind of disenchantment, we (coughs) come to understand that there's no one who wants just wanting. We don't have to get rid of the wanting. There's no one who doesn't want, just not wanting. It's just controlling. So be careful of hating our own defense system. Uh, Through the presence of mindfulness, um, we become wise, but also soft and open, tender. It's hard to be vulnerable and learn to be imperturbable through that vulnerability. Because when we were children, we were often attacked for being vulnerable. One of uh, my memories of my father when I was a child is that when I was, what he thought, too vulnerable, he'd say to me, Michelle, you're as soft as a peeled grape with a very, of course, judgmental tone. And I would think, gee, a peeled grape. <laughs> I'd say, wow, he doesn't even think I have, a skin. I have a peeled, peeled grape here. And somehow it would be um, kind of funny to me, but I also had this incredibly rebellious streak in me. I think I came in with it. And I'd dig my heels in and I'd think, well, I'm just going to get, more like a peeled grape. Uh, (laughs) And in a way, I'm grateful for that. Um, I feel like I was taught, through my own rebelliousness, that it was okay to be vulnerable. It was okay to be as soft as a peeled grape. Uh, But it was a very painful process until I learned about mindfulness and equanimity was like the only place I really felt safe was out of the human world and out in nature to be that sensitive. Uh, but once I learned about mindfulness <laughs> uh, it changed my whole life. I felt there was some possibility of being open in this world but also free and protected With the wanting mind, if we get lost <coughs> in it, it often leads to craving or addiction. And that's just more controlling. And there's just less and less understanding. This is a poem by Pablo Neruda called The Citizen. And it's an unusual description of addiction. It's a, um, he gets addicted to the tool shops. <laughs> in his uh, neighborhood or town. So, we don't always think of people being so addicted to nails and screws. And, uh, but he just does this most great description of uh, getting attached to pleasure. I went into the tool shops in all innocence to buy a simple hammer or some vague scissors. I should never have done it (laughs) since then and restlessly I devote my time to steel to the most shadowy tools hose bring me to my knees (laughs) horseshoes enslave me (laughs) I am troubled all week chasing aluminum clouds elaborate screws bars of silent nickel I can't picture his house. (laughs) Unnecessary door knockers. (laughs) And now the tool shops are aware of my addiction. (laughs) They see me come into the cave with my wild, madman eyes and see that I pine for curious, smoky things which no one would want to buy. And which I only goggle at. <laughs> For in the attic stream sprout stainless steel flowers, endless iron blades, eyedroppers of oil, water drippers of water dippers of zinc, saws of marine cut. It's like the inside of a star, the light in these tool shops. There in their own splendor are the essential nails the invisible, invincible latch keys, the bubbles and spirit levels, and the tangles of wire. Once I entered, I never left, and never stopped going back. And I've never got away from the aura of tool shops. It's like my home ground. It teaches me useless things. It drowns me like nostalgia. I am not in your world. I'm a dedicated citizen. I belong to the tool shops. (laughs) Now for you, it might not be bubbles and spirit levels, (laughs) but it's interesting to see how far we can go with craving. During that self-retreat that I had, that I described, that Carpenter's coming with the AM radio. Um, after a few weeks, I felt that I got very quiet. And I was sitting one afternoon for some time, feeling so peaceful, not wanting anything. And I heard somebody open my door and uh, open it. Oh, first they knocked, open the door. And I could hear them put something in, shut the door, and leave. And I was sitting there going, hearing. (laughs) And then, oh no. (laughs) Who was that? And then, what did they leave? And I was so happy and so peaceful. And I really didn't want to get caught in this. You know, I wanted to keep sitting. And at first I could just see those thoughts, you know. Who was it? (laughs) What did they leave? And I'd go back, you know, just going along. And I could just treat those thoughts just as thoughts. And then finally, I just couldn't take it anymore. (laughs) I believed it. You know, I believed one of them. I have to know who left this and what it is, you know. It's just interesting to see those times uh, when you can first see those thoughts clearly and see that you don't have to buy into them. And then also see when you do. And try not to judge it. It's the most important thing to be careful of not hating the wanting mind or hating the aversive mind. Because that just keeps adding more controlling and less and less peace. I remember the first time Uh, that I saw this old defense pattern of mine, of wanting to please others. You know, being so afraid of aversion or anger, and the defense just being, trying to be pleasing. Uh, And when I first saw it, I hated that part of myself. Does hate help? You know, no, it made me miserable. You know, and I finally started to try to understand and have compassion for it, rather than judgment. And I found that with everything, you know, that's the protection, that's the change from judgment, um, from an unhappiness to this non-judgmental, compassionate attention that just lets it be. But by giving whatever is there that's painful attention, You're not ignoring it, but letting it be an opening by itself. There's a transformation. Because it's not done out of aversion. It's not done out of attachment. It's done out of wisdom, which leads to freedom. We can be so vulnerable to craving or desire. Uh, when I was in um, Vancouver, right before coming here to teach with Stephen in Vancouver, we were, we got a newspaper after a ten day retreat up in northern British Columbia. And there was an ad in the paper called the Zen of Zigging. And it's an ad for a um, Katera. It's called the caddy that zigs. And just try to figure out if this is about attachment or enlightenment. This is an ad for a car. Once the clouds part, we're able to view things with far greater clarity. Moments when we zig unexpectedly into a higher state of awareness. Just such a moment would be an ideal time to consider a truly unexpected German-inspired luxury sedan. (laughs) Don't you think? (laughs) One that combines the European ideal of performance with the North American standard of luxury, the Cadillac Catera. The Katera also elevates the Zen of ownership to a higher level. <laughs> <laughs> the Cadillac no-charge scheduled maintenance program leads the industry. It spans a 4 years of 80,000 kilometers and leaves virtually no aspect of driving and maintenance unprotected for a more rewarding ownership experience. For further enlightenment, Visit our website. When I read that, I had some aversion. (laughs) I thought, what are they doing (laughs) to the teachings? Uh, I would be prepared for more of that, not less. Uh, But just to see, you know. Is that attachment or enlightenment? How easily our vulnerabilities can be used. Um, It's amazing. And kind of scary. (laughs) So what is freedom? In taking birth here on this planet in the stream of change, of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral feeling? What is the difference between a learned or wise being and an unlearned or unwise being? Well, when there is an imperturbable awareness in the stream of experience, a house builder is seen through. A fully enlightened being is said to have six-limbed equanimity. And that means at the six sense doors, there's freedom moment to moment. Freedom at the eye door means that we understand in a moment of seeing that there's no one that sees, only seeing. Freedom at the ear door in any moment means understanding in a moment of hearing that there's no one who hears, only hearing. And on and on, there's no one who smells, only smelling. No one who tastes, only tasting. No one who hears, only hearing. I said that one, no one who thinks, only thinking. And we can use that kind of phraseology whenever we need it. There's no one who has insight, only insight. There's no one who doesn't have insight, only not having insight. There's no one who is mindful, only mindfulness. Now remind yourself of this sometimes. There's no one who's walking, only walking. You can bring in these things when you're eating. You can bring this phrase in sometimes, there's no one who tastes, only tasting. It can set the stage for a very deep understanding that there is no separate I or me or mine. It's only in a temporary moment of aversion, when we believe it, that there's an I present. There's only in a temporary moment of attachment, that when we believe it, there's an I present. And get to taste the moments when there's no presence of aversion or attachment. There'll be a feeling of peace. You've tasted them already. They're wonderful, they might be neutral, maybe they're not so intense. But we develop this taste for contentment, for peace, for freedom, over the struggle and the intensity and familiarity with living lost and wanting, and the familiarity of being lost in aversion or not wanting. when attachment, aversion, or delusion aren't present, we have all the time in the world. There's only time present when we're caught. Otherwise, there's just a flowing stream and deep peace. Uh, So it's possible for us out of this clarity and freedom to start to treat, treat each moment equally. And there's a possibility to understand that any moment that we're mindful, we can be awake. You know, that we awaken through anything. We awaken through brushing our hair. We can awaken and be wise when we're eating. We can awaken and be wise in any moment. Uh, So, I'd like to end with a part of a poem, again, by Neruda. And it's about this ability to treat each moment equally, whether it's painful or pleasant or neutral. And that's when we really start to get free. It's a very long poem, and I'll only read a part of it, uh, but it's called Ode to the Plum. And when he was a young boy, He had a very transcendent experience of riding along on a horse between these rows of plum trees. very deep experience. Uh, He remembered, as he got older, the smell and transparency of the plum. Uh, But then he changes. He says, maybe I have changed. I am not that child riding a horse along spiraling mountain roads. Maybe more than a scar or the burn of age or life, my forehead, heart, and soul have been transformed. If at this hour, whatever it may be, something substantial as bread or a dove or bitter, as the betrayal of a friend. I raise to you a plum, and with it, in its little cup of amethyst amber and fragrant thickness, I drink, and make a toast to life in your honor, whoever you are, wherever you're going. I do not know who you are, but I am leaving a plum in your heart. Can we treat the taste of bread and the bitter betrayal of a friend as the same possibility for enlightenment? That's freedom. Let's sit for a moment. May we have a mind that's ready for anything. There's no one who's free, just freedom.